on the last episode of Cinema Duel. Oh, shit. I forgot about that. I was going to bring that up. We talked about the films of Edward Yang, and there was a question that we left hanging uh, around whether, whether or not we should add the film Yee Yee to our Cinema Duel Wall of Fame. And I had said, because I had said that I needed some time to think about it, and more specifically, time to rewatch it. And yeah. whereas I needed no second viewing, I unabashedly love this film and it is in my shelf of fame without a doubt but john is it going to be in our self shelf of fame <laughs> that's the question mr wharf fire yeah it it's it, it, deserve, it deserves to go on there. Yes! <laughs> yes, it does! It is so good! Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice. Hey, how are you doing today? Doing good, John. Thanks. It is, uh, we should note uh, for everybody else out there as well, it is the eve of Father's Day. Uh, it is also the eve of Juneteenth. Uh, it is a lot of things. It's also uh, my father, uh, were he still alive, it'd be his birthday tomorrow. Uh, it is a beautiful Saturday. It is so many things. So whatever it needs to be for you guys out there, I hope it is for you. Uh, how are you doing, John? Uh, I'm thinking on the various father-related happenings, including a father-in-law in the hospital and getting uh getting my kids all psyched up with uh, various playdates today, culminating in the uh, adoption of a new kitty that they had no idea was coming. So I feel like, yes, this for many reasons is just a time when I'm thinking about dads, which unfortunately uh, we picked the wrong movies uh, from our filmmaker today. If we were going to talk about uh, fatherhood, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's uh, I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's uh, it's it's doing okay. Uh, things are wild, uh, as I'm sure they are with you as well. But uh, we we're getting by. Um, our choice for today's episode is the director uh, Richard Linklater. Um, Chris, this is your pick. Yeah. Do you want to give us a bit of uh, intro to Mr. Linklater? It was my pick, um, and it's interesting. I didn't really have a deep kind of seeded uh, agenda for wanting to talk about Richard Linklater. It was really just that at the time, um, I had been putting off seeing his latest film, Apollo 10 and a Half, which is uh, um, on Netflix right now. You can see it. And uh, it's interesting because I like Linklater. Um, uh, he, he's not one of those people I have a dear passion for. I've, I've, said, I've definitely not seen a lot of his films. Um, but every one that I've seen, I've really liked. Um, and it just kind of turned out that we were going through the, the films and the two films that we settled on. Um, there, is, there is definitely a theme because we chose two of his animated films. Um, I, when I th think of kind of the films that Linklater does, um, 
obviously most known for things like probably Dazed and Confused is the biggest thing that he's he's known for. Um, Slacker, the film that kind of launched him into um, the indie kind of um, critical darling scenario. Um, the Before Trilogy, uh, which had we done this a couple of days ago and it was June 16th, which was the day of uh, um, Before Sunrise, everything would have tied together. But we didn't pick those films. Um, we picked two really interesting films because it's there's a weird thing I, I find with with Linklater. He's definitely got a style. He's got an aesthetic. Um, and it's interesting to see how he uses that in two very distinct kind of films. One we're going to talk about is extremely personal, uh, and one we're going to talk about is a literary adaptation. So it's really kind of it's 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 kind of cool. But I had no preconceived agenda coming in. It was just hey, I really want to watch Apollo Ten and a Half. Maybe we can use that as a launching point to talk about Linklater and watch some Linklater films. Um, John, uh, I, I, I think we probably come to Linklater from like different films and different kind of viewpoints. Mine is very much more of kind of the indie talky-talky uh, thing of like Slacker um, and uh, films like that. Where did you come into to Linklater and uh, what were your, your thoughts on him before we, we jumped into kind of choosing him for the episode? Um, I mean, I'll just for sort of like with, with no... With no shade intended, um, I, 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 and, and I, and I actually do want to go back and rewatch some of his more well-known earlier movies. But I like when I watched Days and Confused, and when I watched Slacker, I for the first time, however many years ago it was, I was like, this does nothing for me. Like it, it, it <laughs> and I know that they're beloved, so I, I do want to like go back and get take another swing at it. But my first. Uh, the films that people seem to give him the most high regard for, like I have, ab- I have absolutely no um, attachments to for, for better or worse, which is probably not great. Um, and looking uh, the, the one of the things that unfortunately I have not been one I, that one I wanted to do for this episode, but had not been able to do was to watch the before trilogy. Um, Cause that seems pretty cool and seems uh, like, a different kind of approach to the uh to the movie boyhood which i really liked like in terms of like the passage of time um or, or tracking tracking the same characters across time in in, in different kinds of ways um so i i, I do want to see that and but looking at through his um the films of his that i have seen the probably the one that i like if you're talking about like entry points or stuff that i really liked was i don't know if i would even call it a personal film i it was school of rock like like legit school of rock going into this episode i would probably have to say honestly was my favorite uh link letter film uh now that being you will find uh no ill words about school of rock for me it's it's a great film i love yeah it. um but the but yeah i so i mean you've uh, it, spoiler alert uh our second movie we're going to be talking about today is Apollo 10 and a half. You already set us up as that as the reason why we're doing this episode. So it's no point in hiding it. And our, our first movie, uh, I thought what was for me, both a revelation and also I thought it would be a nice counterpoint, uh, to talk about Apollo 10 and a half. So why don't we get into our first film, uh, for the episode, which is 2006, a scanner darkly.
So this film stars Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, Winona Ryder, and Rory Cochran. Just, I mean, just right off the bat, uh, it, it's it's one of the things that I found so um, kind of astounding about this movie is the cast that they got for it. Given the, like, modest, like, this is a very interestingly styled movie, but given sort of the scope and the scale of it at this point in time would to get those actors feels like a it feels like bigger actors for a production than you would anticipate if that makes any sense like it feels like these people should be in a bigger movie um and adding to that feeling for me is the fact that this is a adaptation of a novel by philip k dick and in the you know, starting with Blade Runner and then through movies like Total Recall, Minority Report, the Philip K. Dick, um, the the body of Philip K. Dick's work um, is increasingly getting used to uh, be adapted into movies. And they're, I mean, Total Recall at one point was like one of the most expensive movies ever made. So they're always these, these like huge, huge type productions. And one of the things that I think is most sort of interesting about A Scanner Darkly is sort of how it's i mean it's a it's i think i mean i've only i'm only halfway through the book myself which i also started reading for this um but so far it's been a fairly faithful adaptation of philip k dick's work um but also it doesn't seem to um it, it has interesting ideas without wanting to be i guess as like grandiose as some other philip k dick type movies that we've seen um I think you to touch on that real briefly because you bring up a great point. This cast, you would expect to see this cast in one of the large budget Philip K. Dick adaptations, right? Uh, I mean, Tom Cruise is in Minority Report, Schwarzenegger is in Total Recall. Even going back to like some of the other kind of lesser popular Dick adaptations, Gary Sinise is in Imposter, um, that was post his Oscar win for Forrest Gump. Peter Weller is in Screamers, uh, which is an adaptation a second variety. We, we had talked about, I, I love Philip K. Dick as a writer, so I, I, I tend to search out a lot of his um, adaptations. And the thing that's really interesting, and I'm glad you read the book so you noticed it as, as well, um, you hear a cast like Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, Winona Ryder, um, and you think, oh, they're doing a Philip K. Dick adaptation. It would be like one of those adaptations. Uh, John Woo did Next with Ben Affleck. That was another John Woo, uh, a Philip K. Dick adaptation. Instead, they do Richard Linkletter's version, which is by far the most faithful adaptation to a Philip K. Dick novel, I, I think, on film. Uh, so it's really interesting that all of these actors kind of get together to do this this uh, dick adaptation and it turns out you know you only needed someone like small indie filmmaker Richard Linkletter and uh, rotoscope technology to really bring Dick's vision to life better than millions and millions of dollars spent by someone like you know Spielberg or Paul Verhoeven well and the and the well and apparently he also needed the the blessing of the uh, of Philip K Dick's estate which sounds like it was somewhat crucial to the the production of the movie as, as his sort of commitment to um making this as as faithful as possible um it's it's also adding to the wildness of that cast is the fact that um for have like as as well as i think the you can recognize obviously the cast in the movie but like you're taking these 
ridiculously famous and attractive uh, actors, and you are basically animating their reanimating their faces over the thing like you're taking like it, it would be like trying to draw mona like trying to trace over mona lisa in crayons uh on top of the original like and that that might be a, a bit of overstating it but it's also kind of wild that you're these people are agreeing to be in this movie and then also have their faces basically reanimated to sort of recomprise more or less what they look like um that's that, yeah. that kind of boggles my mind a bit. Well, we should talk about kind of um, so when we talk about animated Richard Linklater, we are we're only talking about one type of animation. He is he is very known for um, using rotoscoping. It's it's he's done three films at this point that are all rotoscope animated features. This is the middle one. Uh, it is bridged on either end by Waking Life, uh, which maybe we can talk a little bit about in the recommendations, and then Apollo Ten and a Half, um, which uses it to slightly different effect, but. Um, the thing that I really enjoyed about this, uh, about the fact that he uses the rotoscope here is, to your point, it's a little disconcerting at first to kind of see, when you think of animation, typically you think of these actors voicing these characters or doing these different things. And the character that they're voicing or they're portraying typically looks nothing like them. Uh, you know, they're, an they're animated, they're exaggerated, so on and so forth. But with rotoscoping... While you do have the option to do that, and there are instances where liberties are taken with physical appearance, um, it, 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 it crucially is part of the plot, um, he's using these actors as they are. I mean, you can clearly see Keanu Reeves' as Keanu Reeves and Robert Downey Jr. as Robert Downey Jr. I think that's fascinating, but I think it's a really key kind of choice to do it this way because one of the things that I loved about A Scanner Darkly, I, I really enjoyed the film, so, you know, spoiler, this is not a film that I dislike at all. Um, when we talk about kind of Dick's near future and kind of what he's doing and, and some of the science fictional elements of this film, it's really easy to kind of integrate that using this rotoscope technology. Nothing, nothing seems, everything seems a little bit more tangible because you're already making the connection that that is Robert Downey Jr. That is Keanu Reeves and they're just kind of animating over him. And then when they have the moments where there are science fictional elements, whether it's an alien or whether it's um, this incredible technology of the scramble suits, um, it kind of brings this hallucinatory kind of weird vibe to things that I think better than, again, any Philip K. Dick movie I've ever seen better embodies what I think of when I think of Philip K. Dick as a writer and I think of him as a fantasist um, are these kind of crazy ideas that I, I think Rotoscope brings to life better than, again, you know, $160 million that Spielberg puts to life on Minority Report. Well, and the, the you talked about it as being like a hallucinatory type effect. And I... I agree, and I think that for I think I think my specific reaction when I saw it was like it was my brain had a hard time sort of wrapping my head around the images that I was seeing. It it everything felt sort of at a distance. Everything felt off. Um, what an interesting response to a movie that is all about. <laughs> 
the way your perceptions are altered and and you know seeing things that maybe are not how they should be seen yeah yeah <laughs> to to yeah to be clear i think that 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 technique in this particular film is like an inspired choice um because it allows it allows you to play with again familiar faces of people of actors that you recognize but it just everything feels off um and this is probably the probably a good time for us to start talk about what this what this movie is actually about um which is that you have the way easier you have the way harder chore than i do when it comes to summarizing our film choices so you can do that john i mean i i think that you could just broadly say that this the 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 book um as well as the movie um is a is follows the main character in this is played by uh, Keanu Reeves, who plays uh, the role of uh, Bob Arctor, and he is a undercover cop who is trying to uh, who who is working to try and f- uh, find the source of a uh, of a deadly drug called Substance D, and he. <clears throat> And through a couple of science fiction-y type uh, conceits, um, no one knows uh, who... Uh, so he, he works as an undercover cop, but no one knows uh, who he ac- actually is. Um, so that ultimately, the police have him investigating himself because, he, uh, because Bob Arctor is getting money outside of his job. And... The police don't know that it's their own money that is being paid to Bob Arctor to do this stuff. And so they assign their undercover cop, who is Bob Arctor, to go <laughs> to go spy on Bob Arctor. Um, and uh, clears crystal. Clears crystal. And but but ult- ultimately, he is trying to work his way towards finding out who is producing this lethal and deadly substance D um, because no one has been able to do so. Um, the uh robert downey jr and uh woody harrelson are his uh are his friends in all of their escapades and shenanigans um of various uh drug-induced and paranoid uh states and uh winona Ryder is his dealer slash would-be girlfriend but it gets a bit weird um and i mean it's it's i mean the, the, it follows his sort of bumbling attempts to solve these mysteries. Um, yeah, I I think one of the things to kind of help for those that haven't seen this, right? The the reason why this works, even though in the telling it makes no sense, right? The 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 large conceit with the police is the use of these things called scramble suits. So. Um, the undercover cops, everything is so undercover that the undercover cops, when they're not undercover in their role, they wear these suits called scramble suits and they are entirely enclosed suits that completely disguise a person's voice, mannerisms, and look. So, um, in the film it's portrayed as kind of like a, if you think about it, like a, 
like a reflective suit, and the visage that is on it is a constantly shifting human being, man, woman, uh, black, white, you know, bald, beard, not beard. It's just this constantly shifting visage of a person. Um, and then the voices, and, and there's not enough credit. I was looking through the cast. There's not enough credit given to even the voices are disguised. So it's Keanu Reeves, and there are shots of the film with Keanu Reeves inside the suit, and you can tell it's Keanu Reeves, and when he speaks, it's Keanu Reeves. But when it's showing him in the suit from the outside, it's just this kind of hallucinatory, almost nauseating, you know, shifting perspective of a human being. But the voices are phenomenal. They're these very monotone, kind of white, middle-aged, middle-class voices um, played by um, Sean Allen. So Sean Allen is Fred, which is what they call um, Arctor when Arctor is in the police station. And then Mark Turner plays Hank, who is his superior officer, who... Archer doesn't know who that is because, again, when he meets, that person is also in a scramble suit. So as everything is happening, no one knows who anybody is, including the people in the police department. They don't know who the person is that is going undercover. Um, so that's kind of why it plays the way that it plays. And it's just such a Dick is a master of kind of like these little simple conceits. And it's just because of that that makes this story makes the novel and then makes the movie kind of as crazy as it as it eventually becomes and then you know obviously there's a whole bunch of who's who's this person on under that suit and what eventually winds up happening here is that ken reeves uh, because he's undercover he winds up taking substance d and one of the weird things about substance d is it splits the hemispheres of your brain and makes your brain compete against one another so when arctor is told he has to um, do surveillance on himself, he doesn't realize he's doing surveillance on himself because the substance D has fractured his mind in such a way that he doesn't realize that Bob Arctor is not him, that Bob Arctor is actually a, he thinks Bob Arctor is another person. Um, and it's a, it, again, it's, it's one of those types of things and it gets, it gets very crazy, um, but it does work and it does make sense. And as weird as we're making it sound in the description, there actually is a fairly solid through line that goes goes from point A to, to to point Z when it resolves itself at the end. Yeah, absolutely. The um I think that if the I don't th without needing to I guess get too deep into the specifics of the plot mechanics, I I I think that this movie is very good at establishing and and again like this is where I want to like again as faithful as it is like sometimes like verbatim uh to uh to Dick's original uh words um but as far as the I mean obviously rotoscoping does a a, a lot of the work here um but I really want to credit uh Linkletter for the the this is a this is a movie that gets that profoundly works uh on vibes and through through the choices uh like there if there's if it's not a particularly plot heavy kind of movie um <clears throat> i mean i again it's been a minute since i've seen stuff like slacker or dazed and confused where it does feel like there's more it's not so much about plot as it is just about establishing an environment um this this reality or unreality whatever you want to call it is incredibly well realized um, and the, like from the, the minutia of like 
the the any basically anytime you're checking in with uh the the three friends woody harrelson keanu reeves and uh robert downey jr they're just off on like ten thousand different drug-induced tangents where uh it's it's hard to wrangle any sort of sense from them but like this is not a movie to be like I, I feel this isn't a movie to be like understood and dissected so much as it's just a feeling to be experienced. Well, that's, and that's what makes this, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, it, it, it sounds like you haven't had a chance yet to revisit Slacker um, and Days and Confused, but I know you watch Waking Life, which I think we have wildly divergent opinions on. But one of the things I think is interesting about A Scanner Darkly is it is very much, and I was saying this earlier, it is very much a Philip K. Dick story, but it's also very much a Linkletter film. And I think where Linkletter really shines through with his idiosyncrasies is in those scenes, those scenes where it's um, Lockman, Barris, and Arctor just in their weird-ass escapades when they are when their car breaks down and there's this insane conspiracy theory over what happened with the car and Barris. Robert Downey Jr. has the incredible skill of always playing Robert Downey Jr. I mean, I mean, he is Robert Downey Jr. when he's in a Marvel film. He's Robert Downey Jr. when he is in all of his weird 80s films. He was in a Rodney Dangerfield film, for God's sakes. He was in Back to School. And he's very much Robert Downey Jr. here. Super fast-talking, super kind of erudite, but, you know, not always, you know, buying the shit that he's spilling out. But he always makes it work. He is immediately a part of whatever thing he's in. Um, and the three of them just on this weird escapade as they're driving and the car breaks down, the conspiracy theories that kind of happen. That to me is Linklater. It's rhythms. It's it's almost a musical cadence, which is why I think like School of Rock works as well as it does and why it's certainly part of his wheelhouse because it's those asides. It's those little things that really don't further the plot but establish um it, it really establishes a world just in how much it focuses on minutia and how much it focuses on these different rhythms and cadences between the dialogue. That's what Linklater is to me. That's what Slacker is. That's what the before films are. That very much to me is what Waking Life is all about. And this movie has a lot of parallels, excuse me, to Waking Life, including I'm surprised you didn't talk about one of the recurring cast members <laughs> in a lot of Linklater's <laughs> early films. And he's in here for a brief moment as well. The wonderful, the always entertaining and extremely erudite uh, Alex Jones is in this movie uh, very briefly. Because he was a character in the Austin scene, and that's where he kind of made his bones. And Linkletter put him in a couple of films. <laughs> it's weird. A choice he's never regretted since. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's but it's weird to see him spouting a variation of the theme that he, you know, was spouting up until recently, where we finally fucking got him off the airwaves. Uh, I make no apologies for the fact I'm not a fan of Alex Jones, uh, but he's hilarious here in the one scene that he's in, and I think he's hilarious in Waking Life. But it is much a I'm laughing at that guy as opposed to I'm laughing with that guy. Um, but I love that about this film. Uh, so I, I was wondering, just based on your old recollections, do you see like those through lines to the earlier films in, in those moments? Or was it for you just kind of the camaraderie of these actors that we know from so many other popular things that was driving you through? I think... Uh watching this has and, and reflecting on what I like about a scanner darkly does have me wanting to go back um, 
and watch some of the earlier films to see if, or maybe, maybe it's the, maybe it's this, I, I, I want to at least answer the question if it's this specific vibe that I think works or if it's, um, or if he's able to sort of establish similar, well, I guess it wouldn't be paranoid so much, but the, um, seeing if he can sort of pull off that magic trick again, um, with those movies and, because because I th- one of the things I think will be interesting when we transition to talk about Apollo ten and a half is how the sim- there are a lot of similar techniques used in that film to this film that uh, accomplish that are that have very different goals um, yeah. and are potentially uh, not a, a different level of success. Let's just say that. Um, so I, I, I like I, I want to. I do want to do sort of a comparison to see like how how does this stack up w- with the tricks that are being used. I got I got to say you 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 mentioned the 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 car issue the, that was that was really good. I think my favorite exchange between them ends up being the part when they come back to the house and they find oh, the yeah. joint, and then within <laughs> like within I think thirty seconds they are talking about selling the house. Uh, and advertising the advertising the house as drugs for sale in sa- lined in the walls of the house included in a sale price like right. that's like that they, in terms of like just the number of pivots that they go through and are immediately are at well we'll sell the house and we'll uh, uh, we'll say that there's drugs lining the house so that people will pay more for it. <laughs> as a quick aside um, over the last couple of days we've been doing family movie nights um, with my son. And we recently watched both of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr. My 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 son is a huge fan of mysteries and whodunits, so as he's starting to get into those books and those stories, we're like, hey, well, let's watch the the Sherlock Holmes films, and he loves Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and to see him, kind of um, to to go from. We watched the second film uh, actually last night. Uh, so to go from watching Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes, the the deductive genius of all time, to seeing Robert Downey Jr. as James Barris, a guy who is so confident of his abilities and consistently fucks up in this movie every single time. One of my other favorite moments is when they're outside and he has constructed a silencer using homemade materials and they <laughs> shoot it and it is so loud. The entire neighborhood hears it. Uh, it it's 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 just great. It, it, again, it, it's, it's just a credit to Downey Jr. is how his shtick works no matter where you put it in. And, and here he's playing a um, cocksure, like I know everything, uh, kind of guy, but everything he does is completely wrong. He winds up being a narc, but he's being a narc on Bob Arctor, who is the actual cop. It's like a weird, there's a whole weird play here as Barris tries to become a cop himself by turning in another cop. That's the, which is not great, how that works. I'm not a cop, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. It's such a great performance. He's so, his skittishness and his like neurotic kind of wordplay uh, is just wonderful for this type of film. If there's something that I, the, I don't think the ending is bad, and I haven't gotten to the end of the book, but I'm assuming that it's probably faithful. Uh, it's very faithful yeah. to the end of the book. So that the the ending. So 
you can kind of write this off as being well this we're we're following the book the the ending feels like the absolute ending you would expect a movie like this to have like let's just say at 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 this point to make it easier for you to explain this spoilers if you don't if you haven't yeah. seen this movie see the movie before you watch it we're going to spoil the hell out of it now but that should make it easier because the, the you have to kind of talk through what the what actually happens at at, at the end i think at this point so the at like the actual surprising twist in the movie is that uh that uh, bob arctor's boss is it hank yeah hank is actually donna um Don- and the girlfriend drug dealer, the girlfriend drug dealer. And he and Keanu Reeves thought he was looking, he was using Donna to uh, <clears throat> find the source of substancy. But the truth is actually, it's the reverse where she as actually his boss and is trying to get him so uh, painfully dependent on substance D that he has to go to uh, rehab and not just go to rehab, um, which, by the way, all the rehab is done by this place called New Path. Uh, they're the only ones that are set up to administer this. But that Donna is convinced that New Path is not just the people providing the rehab for, but is also the company that is producing the drug. And so exactly. he wants and show she can't. The only way that she can get proof of this is to get Keanu Reeves so fucked up that he gets sent there, and then not only sent to New Path, but also hopes that he gets sent to work on the farms where this substance D is grown, which no one can find no one can. And there are reasons for that, which are all set up in the movie. But, um, by the time that, and and of course, uh, the rest of the movie is just Keanu Reeves being sent to work on this farm where he has, um, almost completely lost touch with any sort of reality and is just working the farms, uh, with one tiny possible hint that he may recover at some point and be able to solve the, and bring proof that new path is in fact, both the uh, producers of substance D as well as the people treating people for it. Um, it, It's hard to knock this for being like this, the, the obvious sensical choice, but it is the obvious sensical choice for something like this to happen. And so I kind of go away from the ending part being like, yeah, that made sense. Yeah, well, so it's something to think about, and this is what's really interesting about why I think it's so successful as not only a Richard Linklater film, but an, a Philip K. Dick adaptation. So one of the things you'll probably read as you read toward the end of the book and you read about in um, – the movie ends actually with a huge afterword by Philip K. Dick. Like the film fades to black and then there's a couple of paragraphs that were lifted from Philip K. Dick's afterword to the book. And uh, in the early 70s, Philip K. Dick kind of went a little crazy and got addicted to drugs and was by himself. He had a messy divorce and there's a lot of stuff going on. And he kind of fell into a massive drug habit and got to know a bunch of druggies and kind of saw how devastating drugs were. And also kind of saw how, and this is one of the running themes with, you know, Philip K. Dick and Paranoia, how people are set up to thrive economically on the, you know, misery of the forgotten, so to speak. So the the book and the story ends in the only way that kind of Philip K. Dick could end a story at that time, which was, hey, no shit, big, you know, big company is profiting off of the death and misery of 
drug addicts. And in his story, it's it's excuse me, what uh, what better way to kind of put the zinger on, but to say that the company who is responsible for the rehab is responsible for the drug in the first place to feed the economy to get them to the rehab to keep making money. Um, so it is kind of obvious to us kind of in 2022, but what's really interesting is how much of it kind of um, plays into what was kind of happening in the early 70s and what Philip K. Dick himself really kind of experienced. So it is a little obvious and it is a little kind of like, oh, what a shock. The company is the one who's behind it all. But you have to remember at the time of the 70s, that was not as uh, common a thing as it maybe was in 2006 and certainly in 2022 when we've had like Martin Shrek Kelly and, uh, and the whole, uh, I can't remember the name of the girl, but they just had the Hulu movie with, uh, with her about, um, the blood lady about the drug testing. Yes, the blood lady, <laughs> the blood lady whose name escapes me at at the moment. We are seeing a scanner darkly play out, you know, in real time now with all of these other players and all of these other. Wow, no shit. People are making money off of other people's misfortune and, you know, taken to its sci-fi extreme. You know, they're directly responsible for the misery that is feeding the money to them later on. Well, and I think when. Uh I think you you mentioned the afterward um, taken from the from Philip K. Dick himself, where he mentions all of his friends who are punished way too much. Um, I think that where we're going to talk about Apollo Ten and a Half being a very personal movie um, for Richard's uh, Linkletter, I think that what is interesting about this is, or one of the things that I think shines through for me in this movie is this is a very this is a very personal. Film, but it feels like it's very personal for the original author. Like this is, um, yeah. You, you, we can talk about laughing at sort of the shenanigans and the paranoia of these people, but um, it is again you're experiencing this film with these characters at very close proximity, and there's not really a distance or judgment that feels like that you know society often does put in people like a throw towards people in these kinds of situations um and that and and i do especially like the touch at the end of including especially because this even if this is an adaptation for richard linkletter this is this was i mean <laughs> i even read up it was this, a very personal book for philip k Dick. a lot of it being barely fictionalized like if this film doesn't feel quite a science fictiony in some respects it's because a lot of the material that went into the book was stuff that just happened to Philip K. Dick and then he had to come up with some sci-fi rappers to sort of make it a sci-fi book. Like it feel this feels both in the book and in the movie, sort of one of the more like realistic uh, uh, and less sort of outlandish uh, uh, stories that I've seen coming from a, or at least as far as adaptations go for, for Philip K. Dick stuff. So going 
from a literary adaptation to something that is much more close to home, the film that I picked, and as I alluded to in the beginning of our episode, was Apollo Ten and a Half, um, subtitled A Space Age Childhood. So where we look earlier at a film that was literary adaptation using a lot of the cinematic and filmic language of Richard Linklater, this is very much a... A personal Linklater film, probably, to my mind, maybe one of the most personal Linklater films. Um, you can look at things like um, Days to Confuse, which kind of um, dramatized his experiences growing up in the late seventies um, as a kid in Austin, Texas. And some of the other films, you can look at the Before trilogy. You can look at Boyhood, um, which included his daughter in a key role as personal films. But Apollo 10 and a half is very much um, his recollections growing up in Austin, Texas, uh, not in Austin, Texas at, at that point. I think it was actually in um, Houston, um, right next to NASA, uh, when everything was happening. Uh, what's it like in 1968, 1969, when we're about to go on the moon? What must it have been like to be a child growing up in that environment at that time? And that's what Apollo 10 and a half is. What's interesting about the film is um, when the, I saw all the trailers for it, the first thing I noticed was, okay, it's Richard Linklater. He's doing rotoscoping again for the first time since A Scanner Darkly, which we just talked about in, in 2006. Now it's 2022. Um, and the way that the marketing was for the film was, and I thought it was hilarious. It was about a young boy named Stanley. Um, he's visited by NASA scientists who tell him, look, uh, we made a mistake in the math, and we made the lunar module lander a little too small. So instead of having the regular astronauts go, uh, we're going to need a kid. And you fit the bill because of your test scores. Uh, that's how the marketing kind of plays this movie out. So you're thinking like, oh, this is a weird kind of alternate reality where the first person to land on the moon was a kid because of a math mistake. That's not what the film is. The film is so much about memory it's so much about childhood and what you how do i say this what you do as a child um to kind of envelop the world how do you see the world as a kid how do you make sense of the world as a kid well what you tend to do um and i'll speak for myself as a child of the early to late 70s is you take everything that you're seeing and you put yourself in the middle of it. So th this is a movie that is about what it was like to grow up in Texas in 1968, 1969, where NASA and the moon landing was such a prevalent thing because of the promise that Kennedy made during his administration. It is that. Uh, but it's also the story of a young child named Stanley uh, and how he is able to wrap his mind around those events. And the way that he wraps around his mind around those events is to put himself in the center of the story. And the center of the story is, you know, NASA comes to him. Uh, he is the only one that can do this mission because, hey, look, not everyone is perfect at math. and They messed up with centimeters or millimeters and the lunar module is just a little too small. So he's going to need to go to a top secret camp to learn to be an astronaut so that he can fly before um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and the rest of them go to the moon. 
that's what this movie is. Um, it is very much um, uh, a nostalgia piece. It uses the rotoscoping, but it uses the, the rotoscoping in a very different way than um, I think a scanner darkly does. It uses it to accentuate and um, and expand some of the feelings that 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 you see. Um, Taking a tie back to School of Rock and 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 Bernie Jack Black is the narrator. Um, Stanley is played by a young boy named Milo Cody, um, and it's it's a it's a delight. What it really does so well is it makes it 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 revels in the moments of what it is like to be a child. And it doesn't matter that it's a child in 1969 or, as I remember it, a child in 1977 or 1978 or the early 80s when I was about Milo's age, um, Milo Coy's age or, or, or Stanley's age. This is where I think the rotoscoping does something completely different than it does in a scanner darkly. It it accentuates certain moments. It it um, dramatizes certain moments by going in a completely different style. But because the nature of rotoscoping is you are filming something and then animating it over it, it gets these small little touches right. And uh, the one thing that I'll ask you, John, before kind of taking your take of is... Um, were there any kind of moments in the rotoscoping that really caught you? I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the one for me. Um, if there is a truer moment in the film, I don't know it. But one of the things that I treasure as a child is when you are so tired uh, that your parents need to pick you up like dead weight and carry you to bed. And you're not even really that tired. But I know like coming home from a long drive, it was an hour and 10 minutes drive from my grandparents' house to our home. And I would invariably fall asleep or pretend to fall asleep by the time I got home so that when we pulled up to the driveway... My mother or my father at the time, he was still with us, would pick me up, throw me over his shoulder, bring me into the house and cart me into bed. And there is a moment in this film where they're all watching something late at night and it's super late and Stanley's asleep and his father literally just picks him up, throws him over his shoulder and carries him to bed. Traditional animation would never have captured that moment the way that the rotoscoping does in this film. And this is a film that is filled with a dozen, a hundred of those tiny moments of childhood that resonate, at least for me, who only grew up as a kid maybe eight to ten years later than this time, um, they resonate with me so deeply. Uh, I, I I desperately love this, this movie. So I'm wondering, as someone who is a good 10 to 15 years younger than me, uh, did it have the same effect on you? And and how did you think of the rotoscoping here as opposed to how it was in a scan of Darkly? There's parts of this movie that I really like um, and parts of this movie that really leave me cold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say, uh, but... Um, I'm okay with that. Within this, within this section of the movie that I don't like, which is most of the first half, except for the first five minutes, um, the 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 one if we're talking about like that moment that you mentioned, the one moment for me that hit where I it hit all of the nostalgia pleasure centers in my brain uh, was the go, the running down of the food dishes. Um, 
even if it's not the specific ones that I grew up with, the like recognizing even, for example, the like the kinds of casserole dishes. For some reason, I was like, shit. Yeah, like the, this this detail survives long enough to reach my childhood um, as far as the the way that f- like food is handled uh, and prepared in the house. That that was one for me where I was like, yeah, they that that one really um and that one really uh stuck and i think that as far as my feelings on the rotoscoping in general in this movie um yeah i don't it it, i think it does create a like something of a a distance from reality but not to unsettle and like be paranoid about it i think it's i think it's used to make it make the experience more magical um yeah and dare i say fantastical and dare i say uh unbelievable almost as if uh (laughs) the question of did this child actually go to space makes it the most insane fucking question that you could ever think to ask not that i'm trying to throw any of my particular real life friends under the bus uh for asking it but um I think that's where. Yeah, I, let's get that off the. Let's put that off the table right away. He does not go. He to the fucking moon. does not go to space, and I don't know. They how, make it very clear how that can, all of that was his way of kind of putting himself into the events that were happening in real life. He Stanley does not go to the moon in this film, guys. That's the spoiler. Jesus fucking Christ! I can't. I can't believe we had to say that. But I know there's at least one person in my life. Uh, who thought otherwise? And I'm usually pretty chill about other people's movie opinions, but Jesus fuck, um, the and, and, and yet <laughs> the fantastical elements of it are where I think this movie does best. Um, the, yeah. the the first five minutes of the movie is where they set up the the premise. The basically it's the trailer that you saw, that you that you mentioned, yeah. which is this kid gets approached from guys from NASA who says, "Hey, we made the the we made the module too small. Hey, you, like you've never screwed up a math test. Fuck you." Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that is such a great that may be the best exchange in the entire movie (laughs) absolutely and you get a hundred every time on a math test no okay like it's it's that part is legitimately great and then (laughs) he stops the movie for i counted half of the movie's running time to go basically set up the context like like the first full half of the movie is just Now I'm going to list off pop culture and like just basically go through the various lists of narrated lists of things that he experienced as a child. Um, And then at the halfway point is when you get back to uh, the the fantasy space training sequence and that's when I'm back in. That's when I'm just like, yeah, we're cooking with gas. Cause even obviously it's not real, but that's when it gets, that's when I start connecting with it again. Like this kid is, um, and it, it becomes that sort of experience. But I I just wish that this movie integrated the two halves of the movie better. I hear you. Or more <laughs> integrated more like through not maybe not better, but like more throughout. So you didn't have this like prep that you didn't start with like, here's the cool shit, and then you don't get any more of the cool shit until you get until you like for another half of the movie. Like if you had just like slowly built up both of those things, um, um more incorporated like more back and forth i think i would have had a much better 
reaction to the film as a whole, as opposed to um, being really excited that immediately like my brain checks out and then coming back again in the back half. That, that, that's ultimately is my thesis for this movie. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could vehemently disagree with you. I don't think I can because I get it. I do get it. And if I'm probably, if I were to look at this a little bit more objectively, I would probably say the same thing. Like you carry, you build the, you kind of build like the gag here and then it pays off over here, but you have this whole middle that really doesn't serve the gag. And I kind of get it. I do. In fact, now that you say it like that, I do get it. But at the same time, again, selfishly, I guess because I'm very close in age to Linkletter, like that whole middle section, I love that middle section because it is so close to my childhood. I remember wholeheartedly just kind of Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over and kids getting hurt. And I remember, you know, creating your own rockets and shooting your rockets off in this, in the, into space. And I, and I remember the huge disappointment. And I think this is where it's key in the film. And part of the reason why he has the fantasies he does is because his father works for NASA, but he is super in the most boring job possible. And I remember my father uh, learning that my father worked for IBM. And I was like, oh my God, you work the computers. It's amazing. My father was just like a stupid. I think he essentially does what I do now. <laughs> but, back then, but back then as a kid, to me, like a computer was like the most amazing thing in the world. And he's like, well, no, I don't actually do that. I just tell other people what to do and they just do these other things. And I just kind of coordinate, which is essentially what Stanley's father does. He's a, he's a shipping coordinator. So he makes sure, which is incredibly important when you're an adult and you think about it for a job to make sure that this stuff gets over here so it can go over to here so that you can build the fucking space shuttle. But no one wants their dad to do their job. They want their dad to be the astronaut. And I, and I get how that whole, you know, bridge of the movie talking about what his life is actually like. So much of that is finding all the cool stuff from the older siblings and the older girls and then just kind of just being like, oh God, but my dad is such a bore because he does this, right? That you, 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 the way that you escape that is to construct this fantasy. Well, my dad may do this, but I'm an astronaut and I do this because they came to me for this special thing. And I think for me, that's what that as much as the, the the hook of the kid has to go to the moon because it's it's too small of a lunar module. Uh, it's all that other stuff that hooked me in as well. I, I am so perfectly attuned to maybe not having an older brother or sister because I was the oldest in my family, but having like my friend. Mike, who lived three doors down from me, and he was two years older from me, going to his house and hearing records that I had never heard before, um, or seeing like a movie that I had never seen before, or going outside at night and playing games with the kids that you normally wouldn't do, and you're in, you're building these entire universes in your head as you're doing that stuff. Uh, it 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 very much captured the nostalgia for me in a way that I can easily see wouldn't work for everybody else. And if I'm being honest, it, it certainly if they if he had peppered the through line a little bit more instead of like, it's all here, wait an hour and now it's back again for the last half hour of the film. 
I get it. I totally get it, but I still enjoy it. I, I do want to throw you a bone here because you telling that story reminds me. It, I wouldn't say that I was ever embarrassed by my dad, but I do take a lot of joy in telling people that my dad was a was a mortician, um, basically making him look at sound to be the undertaker, essentially, um, when in fact he, he was a funeral director like but his job title was funeral director. So like it's, it's, <clears throat> but it's more fun to say mortician, I suppose. Yeah. It's, 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 it's less, uh, it's less outright lies. Um, also I should just mention real quick before I get to where I think, I think I could probably pinpoint my exact issue with how the structure of the film works. Um, but just going back to this person didn't go to space. He is, it is established very quickly that he's embarrassed of his dad and tell lies all the time to everyone. He says, I am a fabulist. Like again, they're clearly setting you up to not believe a word this kid says. Um, now that being said, I think that you could like, cause again, like I was thinking about this even with like a scanner darkly or actually <laughs> to take this out of link letter for a second where my head first went when I was comparing this to like what movies do I like that have like childhood nostalgia um and my first thought was a christmas story a movie that was that came out before I was born nostalgic for a time before my parents were born uh so I have no <laughs> connection to it whatsoever and there is a bit of narration that strings that uh, which is used to great effect but it is people doing things and you get the context from them doing things where in this movie you are effectively listening to a animated video essay narrated by jack black and this is not i'm not i'm gonna it's not going to slander jack black i am a i am a jack black fan high fidelity forever etc etc i think that whom like i think that more could have been shown in this movie without having it be explicitly pointed to like if this had just been a vibes movie where people hang out and do stuff and you get the you get the context without someone literally having to sort of list it out as a bullet point list that would be i think that would even help in this case in this case hmm. it's it's a weird thing because to me the narration and and I admit I, I had a, a little bit of the same problem where it took me a while to get out of the Jack Black is narrating structure, it, which is it, admittedly now too is a bit of a problem when you watch a Scanner Darkly. Like it takes a couple seconds to go, oh my god, that's Keanu Reeves, that's Robert Downey Jr., that's Woody Harrelson, that's Winona Ryder, right? They're all known for doing all these bigger things now too. So you kind of have to push back and let them inhabit the characters a little bit. And it takes a lot longer for Jack Black to do that because Jack Black is so Jack Black. It's, 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 it's like Robert Downey Jr. But Robert Downey Jr. can kind of fit into almost any scenario. Jack Black can't. I love Jack Black, but he can't. Uh, uh, he's amazing in School of Rock because it is fit for him. It takes a lot longer for me to kind of lose the Jack Blackness here. But to me, it's such a link letter thing to have that rambling narration and dialogue and and a lot of the dialogue that kind of fits outside of it that I don't mind it as much. And I think for me as well, there's just so much more. And again, it might be very much you talk about uh, <laughs> about a Christmas story coming out before you were born. I remember seeing a Christmas story in the movie theater. So for me, it's very much a different, I, I definitely had, like this is one of those instances where having been alive in the time period, I 
feel it a lot more. And I, I remember things like there's another great sequence in the film. Like you may not remember, but I remember when people were drinking and driving and it was perfectly okay to have a can of beer between your legs as you were driving. And I distinctly remember my father like asking me like, hey, open this for me. Hold the tab. (laughs) You know, don't throw those tabs away. And I remember, too, putting the tabs of beer back into the cans after the bottles were done. Um, So there was all those little moments like that and like the being picked up when you were too tired to go to sleep. Um, They resonated with me super deeply. I totally understand why, you know, as a this this is so specific a film in some of its moments that it's not going to work for everybody and there is a part of me that's like well it's you know not every film has to work for everybody this is this person's experience it may not resonate with everybody um some of two minds of the matter uh there's a part of me that's like hey look this is a product of its time it's a product of growing up in the late 60s early 70s and if you don't remember that stuff this movie may not be for you, but at the same time, there's a large part of me that's like, man, yeah, I get it. I don't want to see the things that you're saying, but they're there. I can't deny that they're there. Um, I don't know how he would have made them better, uh, because if he had made them better, I don't know that I would have responded to it in the same way. So that, that that's kind of where my, uh, my conflict for Apollo 10 and a half comes through. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I'm, and yeah, like I, the, I can dig the specificity of it. Um, uh, just maybe even take away, not like, again, it's, it's not even so much a Jack Black thing. Like I think anyone doing that same script would have, I would, would have the same trouble with it, but basically, yeah, if you took away the narration or scaled it back a lot and then just reorganized the plot threads, and but the, the specificity i think is yeah absolutely it's it's it works in this movie's favor um because again i can appreciate movies or i can appreciate a christmas story um sure. as much as I, it's one of my personal favorites That's a perfect with, with, example. With, without, you don't have to be alive at the time yeah. to appreciate the film right and 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 that's where I fall here too in line with you on this is like hey look you shouldn't have to be of the time like I am to appreciate the film that way there are tricks that you can do just like a christmas story does a christmas story is timeless i wasn't alive during that time but i respond to it just as deeply as i do to this film yeah the fact that other people don't to this film i think to your point this film could have been a little this film could have been tweaked a little bit more mm-hmm. All right, so to wrap up this episode, we are going to do our regular film recommendation segment. I talked about at the beginning of the episode that my going into this episode, my favorite Richard Linkletter movie was uh, School of Rock. And while Scanner Darkly may have uh, unseated that, I do want to recommend School of Rock because that movie fucking whips ass. Um, I, I un, like no reservations, no hesitations. It's just a very good time. And I like it a whole bunch no uh no distance just it it's very good and i like it so school of rock with jack black i mean if you want to talk about a movie that i like that is directed by richard linklater and stars jack black that i like a lot more than apollo 10 and a half it's school of rock (laughs) without a doubt and i i think i've seen all the richard linklater jack black films at this point i've seen school of rock i've seen apollo 10 and a half i've seen bernie uh, which is also a very good film, but School of Rock by far is the best. I've got two recommendations. 
I want to talk very briefly because I'm still not through the film yet because the film the film is 182 minutes and it's taking me a little bit of time. But everyone and their brother online, if you're part of the film committee, community, you are talking about the film RRR by SS uh, Rajamuli. Uh, this is an Indian kind of Bollywood film. Um, it is exclusive to Netflix. And my God, uh, if you have not seen a Bollywood film, maybe this might be the one to see. Uh, the way that it was introduced to me, and I'm not a huge uh, you know, a student of Bollywood or Indian cinema at all, um, with the exception of a few films here and there. Um, but uh, one of my favorite critics, um, Drew McWeeny, and he had a tweet on Twitter that basically said, I challenge you to go sight unseen onto Netflix and watch RRR until the opening credits and then tell me what you think. So I went and did it because it's Drew McWeeny telling me to go check out this film. I'm always going to check it out. Uh, and I should tell you that the opening credits take place approximately 33 minutes into the film. <laughs> Great. But in those 33 minutes, holy crap. <laughs> I have seen stuff that I have never seen before in a movie. It is unbelievable. It is a epic action historical drama that takes very liberties with two real characters. Um, one is um, an Indian soldier working for the British Army um, who is there to rise to the ranks and become the best that he can be. The other is a uh, he's a revolutionary um, and he is for the Indian people. And his role is that early in the film, these disgusting British people, one played by Ray Stevenson, <laughs> who's been in the Thor films and a bunch of stuff. Um, they like this young Indian girl who um, does the um, hand printing very prettily on uh, people. And they decide to just take her. And the village is like, please don't take our young girl. This is insane. You can't take a human being. And the English are like, fuck you. We're going to kill a bunch of you. And we're just going to take this person because we're English and we're white and we're colonialism and, and we deserve it. And they take the woman. Uh, so the one guy is hired. Uh, he's like part of the group to go and and, and find the young girl and, and bring her home to the parents. And of course, on the other side is the cop who's rising in the ranks of the of the Indian police, you know, working for the British military, working for the British government. Uh, so it is about them kind of coming together, uh, mortal enemies who, be, of course, become best friends and, of course, overthrow tyranny and save the day. Um, in one scene before the title credits, uh, the revolutionary guy fights a tiger and wins. It's it's amazing. In another scene, there's a young child who uh, is thrown off a bridge and lands on a little like piece of junk and there's a raging fire about to kill him. And across across the bridge, like half a mile away, our two leads see each other and they look each other in the eye and without saying a word, they formulate a plan to save that child. This plan involves them driving into each other on motorcycles with flags used as ropes to jump off the motorcycles, to swing off opposite ends of the bridges, 
to meet in the middle, to grab the kid away from the flames, throw the kid to the other guy, and then the guy who is near the flames wraps himself in the Indian flags to be impervious to the flames, to then have the other guy who's now got the kid swing up to the other side of the bridge and throw the kid safely on the bridge, only to then swing back on other sides of the bridge and save each other by gripping hands underneath the bridge in a show of brotherly solidarity. Freeze frame, the title frame comes on. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's been on my, it's been on my radar since people, yeah, again, since those uh, people have been talking about it online and you saying that just sort of like put it up a few more steps. Like, I feel like I have to move it up to, maybe I think I'm going to watch Blade Runner 2049 and then I'm going to watch RR after that. Like that's, I'm going to say this to you, John. I'm going to throw this at, at you. Watch and, uh, take it from Drew McQueenie. Watch until the opening credits. Just don't do anything else. Just watch until the opening credits and then see how you feel. Okay. I, I, I can commit to doing that. I, 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 will, I will guarantee you that at some point I will watch the open up until the opening credits. Okay. Uh, the other film that I have is I've been slowly catching up on films that I've missed throughout the year. Uh, so the other day, I finally caught up on talking about Steven Spielberg. I finally caught up on his remake of West Side Story. Uh, 2021, um, it was, uh, I don't want to say it was largely forgotten. It, it kind of made a little bit of a splash, but in the year of our Lord, you know, of the pandemic 2021, um, you know, it certainly didn't do what a typical Spielberg film would do. Um, maybe it was on the level of like uh, the BFG or something like, like that, you know, Spielberg films that we forget actually occurred. Um, and all I can say is uh, Spielberg can pretty much do anything as a director. Uh, you know, the guy's done action, the guy's done science fiction, Um he can do a musical. He can do a musical like no one I've ever seen. Uh, when you put him and Janusz Kaminski, who has been his cinematographer for so long, um, when you put them together, magic happens. Um, and the the things that I love about his version of West Side Story are how kinetic it is. Oh my God, can this guy film a dance number? Um, it's exquisite. Uh, the ending shot is heartbreaking. Uh, I, I was in tears at the end of the movie. Um, for 95% of the performances, holy crap. Uh, if you have never seen Rachel Zegler uh, in a film, she is, uh, this was her big debut playing Maria. Uh, it, is, it is astounding to see someone become a star in front of your very eyes. Unbelievable. Um, I would say the same of, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with West Side Story as a whole. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, there was the very famous uh, Ray Wise musical in the 60s, uh, Stephen Sondheim musical, you know, on Broadway. Um, but uh, it's the it's it's basically a play on Romeo and Juliet, but instead of Romeo and Juliet, you have the Puerto Rican Sharks and the kind of Bowery Boys of New York, the Jets, um, and the kind of de facto leader of the Jets is this guy named Riff, uh, played by Mike Feist. 
Holy crap. It is literally like someone took um, John Mulaney, the comedian, moved him back to the 1950s and made him as tough as nails, uh, but could dance like Gene Kelly. This kid's performance is unbelievable. Like nothing else, except for Rachel Zegler, like nothing else you're going to see in the film. Uh, casting is amazing. The songs are amazing. The way that Spielberg films every single set piece, the way that he utilizes dance, it's not the same way that it's utilized in the 60s. It is still very stylized, but it's married to a naturalness of these are kids in the 50s that are in the slums that are going to be torn down to make way for Lincoln Center. Um, and uh, it is extremely racist. It is extremely cognizant of how horrible Puerto Ricans were treated in the 50s um, and what that intolerance was like. This is not a movie that uh, plays both sides e- equally. <laughs> horrible things happen on both sides, but this movie clearly, more than any other version, version of this musical says like holy crap you know white people are treating puerto rican people like shit you know and it's and it's horrible um the cast is phenomenal the only bend here is ansel elgort as uh, the lead tony that being said um i still recommend seeing the film it's like it's 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 crazy that as bad as he is this film is still as amazing as it is I did not think I needed a remake of West Side Story. I have the box set collector's edition of West Side Story on Blu-ray. I love this film. Um, I love the original. I love the songs. I love I love musicals. I'm just one of those guys that just loves coordinated dance and song and how songs tell stories. Uh, man, this does it so well. And it has an ending that will haunt you. It is so goddamn good. Um but just go into it knowing that you're going to see the guy playing the lead and you're going to be like, what the fuck is that guy doing here? Because he sucks. And he may grow on you, but man, he is woefully miscast in this film. Other than that, I can't recommend it enough. I was really, really happy that I finally got to catch up with it. So those are my two recommendations. Uh, make of them what you will. All right. So I think that's probably going to do it for us uh, for this episode. Chris, uh, it feels like... Uh, every time we do this, it's uh, it feels like it's been forever since we did the last one, even though we we're pretty on a pretty regular monthly schedule. But uh, as as always, it's always good to uh, catch up and uh, talk movies with you. It ends up being one of the best parts of any given week when we get to do this. And uh, I hope that you uh, stay safe with you and yours. Same here, and uh, I hope the same for you. Happy Father's Day. Please stay safe. Uh, I can't echo John's words enough. This is always a highlight of my week, of my month. Um, Stay safe, watch a lot of movies, and we will see you next time. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.